We're human too, you know. Eyes, teeth, hands, blood. Exactly like you. There really isn't any telling you apart, is there? Absolutely identical in every respect. I've been watching him, tracking him, studying his every every move. I know his every every mannerism, facial tick, gesture. I know him better than he knows himself. And now, after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. There's always an alternate. Lily's the best choice. No, but she wants my role. <laughs> Every dancer in the world wants a role. No, this is different. She's after me. She's trying to replace me. Nobody's after you. No, please, believe me. Here at the Lucas Clinic, we strive to bring you closer to celebrity than ever before. With samples drawn directly from the source, you can be connected in ways you never imagined. Oh, tell him you know me. You must know me. But this is Mr. Pellet. What do you want with him? I am Pellet. I am Pellet! This is uh, this is my friend Anna. She's she's also an actress. Have I seen you in anything? No, I would be surprised. Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask, and he'll tell you the truth. Hey, we're back. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Mary. How are you this week? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm blissfully enjoying the sun. Um, well, my mind is enjoying the sun. My body like immediately got like a heat rash and a UTI and like <laughs> everything else, like, cause it was just couldn't handle what it was like, what is going on here? Yeah. Um, but I mentally am enjoying the sun at the moment. Oh yeah. It's been so nice to have like the warmer weather. Um, like I was telling you before we started recording, Paul and I went to Wales Yeah, and it was so nice. It sounds so beautiful. That's where I'm going to try and go next. It sounds really nice. Yeah, definitely. It is. What a beautiful country. I mean, I'd never been before, so it was all new to me, um, but I just adored it. Uh, we ended up driving through the Beacons all the way up to Aberystwyth. Um, and I, but I have to say, there was one little incident for me in Aberystwyth where I encountered a very strange type of bug that like um, freaked me out a little bit. So um, it was all fine, but I just, I was like, that was the one thing, the one reason why I won't, why I won't return. <laughs> an insect bug, not coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, an insect bug. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, imagine if I'm like declaring on the pod that I'm like patient <laughs> patient zero of the new virus. You know, <laughs> it's a strange kind of bug, but it seems to be gone now. Although Paul's a little bit ill, and so are all my neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. Are there are these guys in hazmat suits outside. Weird. Yeah. Why are they taking me away? Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, no, I'm exactly the same as you. If I encounter an insect I don't like somewhere, I'm always like, I'll never go there again. <laughs> like Yeah. I mean, no, you know, the people of Aberystwyth look looked wonderful. They seemed so nice and so friendly. I don't want to take anything away from them, but I just um 
I don't know. I just I had to throw away my hairbrush. Let's put it that way. Oh my God. That's why. Cause I tried to like brush my hair afterwards and I found it in my hairbrush. It was like, a, you know, it was like a moment in, um, remember the film, like the, 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 the original Suspiria where they find maggots in their hair. Oh yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad, but I just like, it freaked me out. <laughs> I actually had a similar thing. It's super gross though. Yeah. Um, where, cause I go to my, every Saturday I go to my grandmother's house and work on her garden. Cause she has this huge garden and she's not really up to doing gardening anymore. Mm. Um, and the other week I went there and, um, I <laughs> was like gardening. Like I was like getting under like, uh, you know, bigger plants, like weed underneath them. And I like went to the toilet, like pulled my knickers down. <laughs> And like I just like put my head down and a bug fell out of my hair and into my knickers. Oh no. <laughs> it's like a beetle. <laughs> like it was such just like a super gross, horrible moment of like too many things happening at the same time. It's really embarrassing. I don't like it. <laughs> like... <laughs> okay, you need to make a movie where that's one of the scenes. I feel like it's very it's very cinematic. Yeah, it really was. I was just like, ah! Like, I like, pulled my neck off, like, threw them across the room. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I understand. I understand. I'm not a bug-friendly person. Like, I'm, you know, insects and me, we don't get along. No, same. I'm, I'm better as I get older just because, <laughs> like, you know, there are more things that I want to do that I have to, like, deal with bugs for. Yeah. But, like, when I was younger, if there was a spider in the kitchen, I just wouldn't eat all day. Like, and things like that. Or I would just leave. i just move. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah I just can't handle it but now I can like now I yeah I can like really spindly tiny spiders I can like get them out with sure. like some kind of long object if they're like on a web um and I do sometimes kill spiders with like mm. a rolled up lender review of books I don't feel good about it <laughs> Ooh, but I'm just nice. too frightened to even be holding something that's holding the spider uh -huh. like and it's not just frightened it's like a physical reaction yes. of like my whole body feels like it like cr my whole body like crawls yeah. and my I like feel like I'm gonna like be sick and like I get like stomach pains and like it's really it's horrible so yeah I feel really bad for I don't feel good karma wise but I can't go to sleep if there's a spider and if it's too late at night for my flatmate to come and help me then I just oh. have to I just have to kill it Oh, absolutely. I'm going straight to hell for all the amount of spiders I've killed. Like I know. I'm really scared that like hell will be like just like me with loads of spiders crawling all over me. So I try not to do it very much. And I try oh to live God. in places where there aren't very many spiders. Yes. Um, but yeah, I don't want to kill them, but I, I will if they will not go away. Oh, but, yeah. yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, because, you know, I watch uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. There was an episode where Kim Kardashian, Kim Kardashian has a notorious fear of spiders. But her daughter, North, um, like, loves them. She wants them for pets. She, she wants a pet tarantula. Wow, that's kind of cool. But she yeah, didn't pass on her fear. No, exactly. Like, North is a really cool, well-rounded kid. Like, she has no real phobia. She doesn't have anxiety. You know? And she, um, she demanded, to, you know, she really wanted to have a tarantula. And Kim agreed to have like tarantula specialist or something come over and agreed to have like one put on her in her hand for like a few seconds and then have one on her head. Oh my God. That's <laughs> amazing. It was crazy. It was a really interesting episode to watch this kind of in vivo 
like desensitization kind of thing, like exposure in vivo exposure. And like, you, you could tell she's, she's deathly scared, you know? Did she and cry? Then, oh yeah. 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 She's screaming and crying. I mean, in previous episodes of the show in previous seasons, if there was even like the, a hint of a spider, she like ran away, like screaming. I do the same and, thing. I cry as well. Me too. Like I can't, I can't deal with it. It's too much of a fear. But she actually had a tarantula on her head. Like that's just like, she should win some kind of like courage award just for that. Yeah, that's like, amazing. Although yeah. I do feel like tarantulas are kind of like an interesting midsection between like spiders and mammals mm. because they're like so big and so kind of furry. Oh, oh God, no. And now I'm saying that I still couldn't handle it. It's still too disgusting. As you said it, I thought there was like one on my head. Like, <laughs> like touching my head there's no there's none there (laughs) oh god it's bad it's really bad um but yeah I mean it just goes to show like I'm you know I'm such a city dweller like I've completely uh unaware of the natural world so um that's why I am the way I am you you can't go to Australia then no (laughs) No, me neither which is a shame because as we said in the last episode we're huge fans of Australian cinema I know but yeah I no. know, exactly. I mean, I did go to New Zealand and I did encounter one or two interesting exotic bugs, but nothing scary. I wasn't scared. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe, I'll have, maybe, maybe I'll do like VR exposure or something. <laughs> oh, that's a really good idea. You know? Yeah, that's so yeah. interesting. I probably need like 80 sessions. <laughs> yeah, I think actually, you know what? Apparently, like you can cure it in a session. Really? Yeah, my dad always said that. My, my dad was always trying to get me to go when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And uh, like there was someone, there was like someone that he really liked who was on. Do you remember there being a BBC program about vet phobias? And yeah. it was like featured people with different phobias and like the treatment. And the guy that was on that, my dad was always like, get a, get an appointment with him. <laughs> he can cure it in a, in a session. And he really did. Like wow. you watched it, like he would... Like, do, he would start with, like, bird phobias. He would, like, start with, like, a feather. And then, like, by the end of it, people would be, like, holding birds. And it's amazing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so if you actually, like... Maybe I should look into this. Yeah, it's actually not a difficult thing to cure. It's quite, apparently quite easy. It's just whether you want to, like, invest the money. And... We can just get the guy from Antichrist, <laughs> the husband, to take us to Eden and do those little experiments on us you know yeah exactly and if like we don't like a spider we can just bash his dick with a, <laughs> like, with a rock <laughs> well that's the thing that like paul always says he doesn't understand is that like i claim to be scared of things like bugs and like other things but i sit there and i watch like three horror films back to back and i don't even flinch you know and he's like how is that possible you know <laughs> a phobia is not a phobia is so different though it doesn't even it feel is. like i think it's actually disgust yeah um, like the feeling in my stomach is disgust yeah. like and like it you know so it's not so yeah i think it's something it's actually a slightly different emotion it is isn't it um we say fear because like that's what it looks like to other people outside but i actually don't <laughs> think it is fear i think it's something else yeah it's like a Um, repulsion it's a weird like physical thing yeah it's not it's not like just being scared of something it's much it's like much more like intrinsic to your body it happens in your body yes it does um so yeah I don't think I think fear is kind of the wrong word actually let's rebrand phobias yes let's do it it's, it's something different
It is different, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. that then also explains, you know, when we encounter something that is homophobic. Yeah. It's not fear, is it? It's something no. else. It is like repulsion or disgust or some unresolved ambivalent like discomfort that's very visceral as like in the body yeah definitely and actually yeah. uh, the there's like the sim there's like psychoanalytic sim spider symbol is supposed mm. to be about vaginas isn't it it's supposed yeah. to be about like female sexual organs and like female <laughs> power yeah so maybe there's something there about like being frightened of like yeah. um like dominating womanhood like in that is way. very accurate in my case oh really that I think mine too like I've definitely yeah. always I've had like multiple experiences with like women I've been scared of mm-hmm. um, in life so um, yeah maybe it is to do with that oh my god I feel like you, <laughs> I feel like I should like be paying you for this session because you're like resolving <laughs> my issues honestly it makes me want to go and look back at do you remember that artist Louise Bourgeois she had yeah. this huge spider you know but her spiders were called daddy weren't they or like oh, father yeah. they were they were male they were male I think or maybe they're not maybe they are called mother I can't remember but I feel like all of her work is about fathers mm. um so I'm not totally sure but um yeah I mean they used to have the giant spider in in the garden of the Freud museum and I was always so freaked out by that (laughs) I never told anyone um but it's just like looking out the window and seeing that spider like give me the heebie-jeebies for sure (laughs) well I remember like just I remember in my family that I remember the year that the Tate Modern opened I think it was like 99 or 2000 oh yeah um and my grandparents went to the Tate Modern and like apparently like they just went and saw that big spider which was in the um like the turbine hall yeah and just like didn't go any further like they were just like modern art what the fuck like it's rubbish (laughs) and like my granddad was so angry and I now I'm so quite interested in that so he had like a revulsion to like modernity wow interesting um and yeah he just like I remember so many things like around that time like just infuriated him like going to see Moulin Rouge and being like it wasn't about Toulouse Lautrec at all like they were so angry they walked out (laughs) that's a great reaction I know it's so funny oh my goodness and then they said they made me watch the original Moulin Rouge and I was like yeah this is good but (laughs) it's it's just a different thing is your granddad still alive? No, he died about fifteen oh. years ago. My my grandmother's still alive. She's uh, she's the one I was living with. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so she's been like on her own for a long time. Because I was gonna say, if he was still with us, he could have a great letterbox account. You know? Oh, totally. He like really that's a could. great that's that's a, that's a fabulous response <laughs> to to Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we could say he's he's a friend of the pod you know when he goes viral oh yeah definitely well (laughs) I definitely missed out on the opportunity RIP but um you're lucky you've still got a grandma all of my grandparents have passed away yeah I'm definitely really lucky it's really it's incredibly lucky to have that also just for the genes like yeah for (laughs) sure yeah absolutely um I love our intros now because I feel like we free associate. Yeah. That's cool with me. That's really like a nice feeling. Like it makes me feel like, ah, you know, just easing into the episode. Actually, I really enjoyed the what you what your um interpretation of triangle brought up 
yeah. from like for me last last like I'm really talking about it like it's therapy <laughs> but that whole thing about the skeleton and like being like, made to wait at home wow, yeah like it was just it felt like such a huge like breakthrough I like wrote it down I was wow, really proud of it um so yeah I love the kind of free associating that we're starting to do in the podcast yeah I like that so much as well like it, I, yeah you're right like it makes me feel like we're really living up to the potential of cinema as a projective test yes. you know, that kind of um, draws things out of us. Definitely. Actually, while we're on the subject of triangle, I made a mistake last episode mm-hmm. um, because someone, I said that someone messaged us about the taxi driver. Oh yeah. And I said Anton, but it's actually Anthony Adler. Ah. <laughs> so I got it wrong. <laughs> Um, so sorry about that that was like me relying on my memory which is not great especially when it comes to names no worries Anthony Adler friend of the pod who has also donated to us a lot yes so big shouts to him um that's really cool I actually met him um for the first time at an event about Stanley Kubrick he's a big Kubrick fan oh cool like a real connoisseur he knows his stuff so that's really cool um and so, yeah, I, I guess last time we were looking at uh, parallel realities. Yes. So we're going to move on to stage personas. Mm-hmm. And um, I was kind of looking at what we could think about theoretically. Um, and what I really came up with is we could just say a little bit more about Carl Jung's ideas of the persona, obviously, mm-hmm. but also method acting. Mm you know, as a, a kind of technique uh, for performers, because I feel like it's really relevant to these two films, uh, I'm Still Here and Velvet Goldmine. Okay, cool. Go for it. Well, um, so last time we were talking about the shadow, the Carl, Carl Jung's shadow, and I mentioned that it's really a kind of counterpoint to the persona, you know, mm-hmm. um, a, a mask that we wear. Um placed between the self and others, you know, this kind of social face that we present to the world, usually with the function of hopefully impressing other people, but also to kind of conceal our own true nature. Mm -hmm. So there's like a double function going on here, you know. Um, We want to be able to uh, integrate into society by wearing also different you know, different masks, like there's a variety of masks that we might wear depending on the context that we're in in civilization. So it helps us to kind of navigate the different needs of different social contexts, you know. There's no need to deny its its positive function because there is one. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's important to also kind of acknowledge, and this is something that often goes unsaid, is that it does also conceal our, our kind of nature that might be more ambivalent, you know, um, something about our inner world that might be difficult to process for other people, that might even be unpalatable, mm-hmm. you know, that exists in this ambivalent space that is neither good or bad. It sort of has different impulses and, and different directions that it's being pulled into. Um, and the persona or the mask just kind of helps to covered that up really um and that again also can be functional but if we over rely on it we end up never really confronting like that shadow realm Mm -hmm. and we become maybe at a risk of over identifying with the social mask um and this can lead to like a very 
uh, brittle, shallow, conformist personality that's all mask, you know, all persona. I mean, I watch, um, another thing that I watch to kind of like uh, for chill time <laughs> is um, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Mm. And that's a great show that to illustrate the power of the persona, like literally the physical mask of the face, because they all talk very openly about their plastic surgeries, mm-hmm. and in, especially in Beverly Hills. I think this is true for the whole Real Housewives franchise, but I think more than any other location, Beverly Hills is very much the mecca of plastic surgery, and especially women, but also increasingly men feeling the pressure to like look a certain way and present a face that conforms to certain beauty standards. Um, so, you know, they talk about fillers, Botox, uh, facelifts. It's, it's often the face, actually, you know? It's just so interesting to me because alongside that kind of physical transformation that is openly discussed on the show and various, like, you know, uh, visits to doctors, you know, offices and talking about what surgeries they're going to have, alongside that runs this kind of... Um, I guess, storyline about people being fake or two-faced and different women in different friendship groups betraying secrets or not telling the truth or not being who they really are and like being fakers, you know? So it is really, I don't don't know whether the shows, the showrunners or the producers are aware of that perfect, like (laughs) kind of uh, parallel coincidence of, the persona and the fakery, uh, both physical and emotional, interpersonal, but it's there. It's um, interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because it's like such a double-edged sword because like those women are expected to have plastic surgery, but then they're kind of like punished for it in this sort of like a strange moralistic way. Yeah. Where it is like, you know, it is, as you said, like there's a line drawn with, you know, between the surgery and like more, like moral failings or like the way that everyone was talking about the Friends actors Oh yeah! In the reunion, like everyone, like just could not stop talking about how um, they, they haven't Botox. they haven't aged well apart from Matt LeBlanc, and <laughs> like that was like all anyone could say about them, just like that they that they looked like suspiciously smooth. Uh huh. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was such a strange thing to be like obsessed with. In I don't know. I didn't watch the I didn't watch the reunion, but neither did I. Yeah, but you're right. There is that. It, it's a very confusing set of messages that tells us that people have to look good at all times especially if they appear in the public you know in the public forums and you know if they're if there's anything too human or imperfect or flawed about them they get punished in the comments Mm -hmm. so naturally they, they succumb to pressure and go and have those you know rejuvenating procedures or whatever the cosmetic surgeries and then they get punished for that. So mm-hmm. it's like they literally can't win. I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously they're multimillionaires, so fuck them. But yeah, of course. <laughs> but at the same time, you're right. Like it's undeniable the more the the sort of double standard of moralization is kind of pretty astounding. Like it's really hypocritical. Yeah, they, they've been they they've had to do these things to themselves 
because of what all of us collectively have said. <laughs> exactly. And like that, there's also, I don't know if you've been watching Mayor of East Town, uh, which is kind of the like show that everyone's talking about at the moment with Kate I Winslet. I haven't seen it yet. It's very good. Like, I mean, obviously for me, I love a murder mystery so much. So it was just sure. everything I wanted. But everyone's talk, like the whole, all of the headlines are about that Kate Winslet is, you know, like, Ref, you know refused an offer to airbrush her belly out of a sex scene okay. and that she you know it's not wearing any makeup and that she like looks her age and I just think it's just like it's just such a ridiculous conversation because she's like a beautiful actress of course and yeah of, of course like she's confident to do those things because she's like super talented like wildly successful incredibly wealthy and beautiful anyway yeah. whereas like if you were like super ugly and you had like and you know yeah. a nose joe and it made you feel better everyone would be like great you know like I, know. I don't know it's it's just this idea like that you know like because like a wildly beautiful woman has accepted how she looks then like everyone else has to everyone like less fortunate has to as well <laughs> like oh <my> God. <laughs> I don't know it's just it's very kind of it's just I don't know we live in just a time I just feel like we live in a time of like endless punish punishment and endless judgment yeah and everything's got to be some kind of like judgmental point of view that teaches a lesson yeah. Whereas, like, you know, it's a great show and she's an amazing actress. And, like, why do we have to talk about whether she's got a belly or not in a sex scene? Yeah. Isn't that just uh, taking away from her achievement it rather than adding to it? It completely is. She was incredible in it. Oh. And, yeah, just for her performance to be reduced to a decision not to be airbrushed oh is, is just an awful way to talk about an actor, I think. Mary, I've I've just had a thought, which yeah. like you can cut if it's too personal. Yeah. Um, but I was just thinking about like you're very interested in personas, um, yeah. like as a subject. But you changed your name. Yes, I did change my name. Um, I just kind of yeah, I just suddenly realized like that because I obviously I met you as Mary Wild. I've only ever thought of you yes. as Mary Wild. But like I was because I was going to ask at the beginning of this episode, I was going to ask ah. like, has there been a time? I was going to sort of ask about like or like a personas and has there been a time you've like fantasized about becoming someone else or tried to become someone else or like and what was that like but then I realized that you actually have become someone else yeah. kind of like or at least in name only or I don't know if the name like prompted a change in other things as well or was like symbolic of a change in other things yeah for sure I mean I don't mind talking about that it's um I changed my name by deed poll in the UK 11 years ago mm -hmm. and it was I always just wanted to have like a good stage name actually. Mm -hmm. So that's when I had started to um, give like these film talks, you know, and my former name is like my father's surname, you know, mm -hmm. that I was just given, obviously like you are anyone, every one of us is given like a family name, which is normal. Um, but I, for various reasons, just never identified with, with the name I was given. And I thought, I need a good stage name, something that um, feels a bit like it's going to be maybe like there's a performance element to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I chose Wild. Actually, one of the reasons was because of Kurt Wilde in Velvet Goldmine. I was thinking that when I watched it. I was like, oh, they've got the same name. <laughs> yeah, he was one of the reasons. But there was also it's a few different reasons. It's because of that and because in Some Like It Hot, Marilyn Monroe plays, you know, that song on her ukulele mm -hmm. on the train. It's running wild. Yeah. 
but also for a few really good songs that I like, like Run, um, Walk on the Wild Side, Lou Reed, you know, Wild as the Wind, which uh, mm-hmm. David Bowie performed. I think it's a Nina Simone song. Um, there's like a bunch of like, I like Oscar Wilde. Obviously, it's not the same uh, spelling. Yeah. There's no E. But yeah, um, it was a very conscious, like persona related decision to change my name. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Does your name give you powers? <laughs> <laughs> um, like, does it help you yeah. with your perceive with your like, um, you know, speak like speaking persona, your yeah. teaching persona? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think it grounds me more in my performance because when, as you know, like I'm not the most social person. I'm not like a social butterfly or anything. So I do feel a bit shy, but if I'm creating like um, a space to perform in it does help to have these little signifiers that ground you in your performance and kind of like solidify that this is something separate to me you know I'm not fully on display this it's this other character so it is it does feel there is a certain doubling effect going on you know mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting but it's comforting, you know, it's comforting. Um, I heard a story that David Bowie took on the Ziggy persona initially because he was very shy. Mm. Um, like he was cripplingly shy on stage. And so really that character just fortified him and made him feel like there was like this separation between him and the audience and he felt more safe behind the mask, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to know something funny? Yeah. I also have a name that's picked from a film. Um, oh. But it's not my second name. It's not my first name. It's my second name. Catherine. Catherine. Um, so my, my second name really is Catherine, but it's not spelt that way, um, oh. the way that it's spelt now. So it's spelt, it's like on my passport, it's spelt um, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, like oh. the, which is my mum's name. Uh-huh. Um, and then I felt like I like the name Sarah Catherine Cleaver I like the name Cleaver because it, yeah. it's quite like a distinctive name it is um but I thought that the spelling of Catherine in Cruel Intentions oh. K-A-T-H-R-Y-N was really cool <laughs> and so like as soon as I got my first email address I started spelling it like that and that was when I was like a teenager uh-huh. and I've never stopped and it's always been Sarah Catherine Cleaver in that way Wow, I never yeah. knew that. Yeah, I would probably change it properly at some point, but I just never really had to. Um, because so everything like professional has that Catherine with a K and a Y. Um, oh my God. Isn't that funny? That's really cool. Yeah. SKC. Um, SKC, yeah. I think I've always really, I think I really like it. I think it works. Yeah, it works um, for sure. Uh, yeah, like I um, yeah, I think it's like kind of a silly like film to choose your name from. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, I just think that's a strange coincidence. Oh my goodness, that's really mm. interesting. Yeah, we're both very persona, like stage performer minded. Yeah, and like I was shy as a teenager. Yeah, and like obviously that character wasn't <laughs> at all. No, exactly. Um, and I think like she embodied <laughs> a lot of the like character traits that I wanted to have like she was yeah. very confident and very like kind of quite dark um yeah so I think I think that's interesting that's so interesting because mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean um Kurt Wilde has the characteristics that I want mm-hmm. like that I, that I kind of hope to 
one day fully achieve <laughs> maybe not the heroine no please don't but... achieve that I'm gonna try not to achieve like the incest and <laughs> and getting people killed but <laughs> well you never know that could come in handy yeah <laughs> but... <laughs> No, but that, I, I understand. I mean, that moment in Velvet Goldmine, where we first see Kurt Wilde performing, yeah, is that is like part of my soul. You know, like I don't know, I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah, it's very attractive. Like, there's yeah. a lot of moments in that film that are like extremely attractive to like to watch. I don't, I can't think of another word like more than attractive. <laughs> yeah, but like it's. I think I just I've said this before with um like once upon a time in Hollywood but um like that kind of the 60s is like I associate that a lot with being in love mm -hmm. for some reason and so like the, the 70s era this is set in it's mm -hmm. like it's quite close to that but like yeah. it's like a little bit darker like it's like being like in bad love <laughs> like yeah. it's bad romance bad romance I'm gonna synopsize quickly because we're starting to talk about let's um, do it are we starting with I'm still here or Velvet Goldmine let's start with I'm still here okay let's do and it and then move on to Velvet Goldmine sounds good okay so um in this documentary that blurs the line between truth fiction and performance Casey Affleck follows fellow actor Joaquin Phoenix as he carries out a plan to retire from acting and concentrate on a new career as a hip-hop musician hip-hop okay. musician that's quite hard to say <laughs> had you seen this before I had never seen it before um, this was my first time watching it and I watched it this morning so oh, what did you think very about fresh. It? oh my god I thought it was a slog <laughs> like <laughs> like a strange structure of like it starts out awful and then it just continues to be awful on the set so it doesn't build or anything it just I don't know I found that this quite tough to watch honestly yeah, yeah. um I I think because like I think because I wasn't aware of this at the time okay so I wasn't aware that whether people I you know I've I've read that this you know was like a an immersive thing that Joaquin Phoenix dedicated himself to for a, like a year mm. where he did behave in this way he did do all these things in public and people thought that it was really happening yeah. but because I didn't live that or experience that at the time I find it hard to believe uh, because okay. I think it's so I don't know I just because I came at it knowing that it was like a hoax or yeah. a spoof or a performance as a performance art as Casey Affleck describes it mm. it just kind of seemed a little bit obnoxious to me mm. um mm -hmm. I think the best like yeah so I found it difficult to watch and I thought like there's a lot of kind of um it just to me it had a little bit of like um an alienating energy because mm um you know like the the audience isn't supposed to be in on the joke because yeah. like there's you know it's supposed to be something that they kept up until the release of the film this like you know mm. this idea of it being real so because of that it kind of feels like watching like two guys have like an in joke <laughs> that you're not part of mm -hmm. and it, they're just being a bit silly and it feels a little bit but then on the other hand it also felt like the your worst idea of what could happen if you take a risk creatively or if you are wow. creative at all um so like in a way it kind of felt like um like a journey into like shame like the shame that holds you back from from doing things 
um, because it's the absolute worst example of, you know, if I do this thing that I like, if I try to be this thing that I want to be, am I going to be humiliated? Is everyone, what's everyone going to say about me? Am I going to, is it embarrassing because I like, I can't do the thing that I imagine that I can do. So to me, that's kind of how I, that's how I watched it. Like, uh, it felt like when you do like the artist's way that like self-help book for creativity and it like makes you kind of like reflect on all of the voices in your head and all the reasons that you don't do something and like it says there's like a really good list of like if like the things I'm afraid of if I become an artist and one of them says I will like drink drug sex myself to death (laughs) it's like one of the things that people fear um but it's just all of those ideas of like it's just kind of the, the whole film is like total humiliation yeah um so yeah sorry I just like spoke on and on but that's like how I read the film in like from my own point of view I was like I think the way that I interpret it is like and it's a nightmare of what of the worst the worst that could possibly happen if you're a creative person basically no I that's a really interesting point of view because um because he kind of is touching on that like you know consciously he says um, like you know when he has that meeting with um, Sean Combs mm-hmm. and they're like in the studio and Diddy is like um, you know why do you think you can just come into like music unprepared like you know you can't just switch inter- industries and, and not in so many words but he's essentially saying like you can't just as an actor swap over like into another industry and just expect to be number one on day one. You need to come in with like investment and like time and talent and work and grind and whatever. Like you can't just, you can't, you know, and and so in a way this movie is kind of playing into those fears of the desire to try something else creatively in a different industry, Mm -hmm. but then like constantly be reminded that like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. You know, or or the fear, or the fear that you're not going to be accepted, that you feel already like on day one as a failure. You know. Yeah, I guess I think I really liked that scene with Sean Coombs like a lot. Yeah. Uh, because he he just kind of obviously like I don't know if he's in on it or if he's not. He's not. He's not. Well, uh, he just come. He's obviously just like a very like wise person. Yeah. Because what he's really saying is like, you have to prepare to be bad. Yes. Um, which is true like of all creative work is that if you're not prepared to be bad then you can't be good um and I think like Joaquin Phoenix the part he kind of plays is like flitting between someone who's prepared to be bad prepared to be like the absolute worst he can be and then like is is and then on the other hand isn't you know doesn't like really want to accept the idea of being like at the bottom of something again yeah yeah I mean that that's it I mean I think that um in a way, like this is all very meta because he obviously never wanted to be a rapper. That mm-hmm. was just a that was just a narrative they put forward, which was the most ridiculous idea. Like fucking Phoenix rapping. <laughs> He's so bad. He's so bad. It's so excruciating. <laughs> Compla fucking K. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's yeah I mean the, he's obviously not got the the natural gift let's put it that way um, but but that's the thing like it's sort of like this imagined worst case scenario of someone like an A-list star really like a movie star um, having the odd you know ha- feeling that kind of t- that type of arrogance that they could do something 
so radically different from their craft, Mm -hmm. but expect to have the success and adoration immediately because they're so powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is what he's really spoofing. You know, I think, um, I mean, because, yeah, it's very interesting to hear your point of view, because I do remember these incidents when they were starting to trickle in, like news that he was like retiring Yeah, that's cool. Like, it would have been cool to actually know what was happening. But I just I had no idea at the time. I was devastated because, you know, like, I'm, I'm probably his number one fan. I'm I'm like, obsessed. I love the the same birthday. We have the same birthday. (laughs) He's four years older than me. But, you know, I feel like very connected to him. Like, I kind of understand him a little bit. Like, I feel like I'm just like his his long lost twin sister, you know. (laughs) And it's just, it's not even like a romantic thing. Like, I feel like I'm his sibling or something. Like, I just really understand him. And he, when he announced that he was retiring, it was like someone had like, I don't know, like shot me through my heart. Like, I felt so sad. And I Mm. remember thinking, I can't believe this film, Two Lovers, is going to be his last film. The one that he made with Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, And then I started seeing like the press junket interviews coming in to promote the film and he looked really crazed and like unstable and unhinged Mm. I don't know what was going on I didn't know they were making a movie all I know all I remember is that he's switching careers and I hadn't even like heard any samples of his music or anything I didn't give a fuck I was like I want him acting again you know and I was like devastated because I really idolized him I still do and um and then like when the news came out that this was actually just a hoax and it was just performance and it was, he was, he was actually just reflecting on his own stage persona, like the character of Joaquin as a A A-lister, as Mm -hmm. a Hollywood star. And that he, cause he famously is known, I think in LA for some, as someone who tells a lot of Atlantis stories. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's he comes out with these real like humdingers about like being like a break dancer or like he comes out with all these claims of things that he does. Half of them are not true and no one ever knows. Like it's, he's sort of built and he does this to create a mystique around himself where he's sort of unknowable. Interesting. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Like he is. So when like when I found out that this was a hoax, it was like the best moment like the realization that it had just been like this little trick and that he wasn't he wasn't going anywhere I was I I almost fell to my knees and like (laughs) I I was just overjoyed you know that he wasn't he was still with us like as a performer Mm -hmm. and when I went to see this in the cinema like I was I I bought my I pre-bought my ticket I was like so excited and I was so I had a, such an exhilarating screening. I still remember it. It was at Curzon Soho. And I came out like like angels singing in my mind. <laughs> like I thought, I, it's such a weird thing. It's a totally different reaction, you know, to maybe people who, as you, as, you know, as you said yourself, like weren't really following this whole thing, mm-hmm. you know? But, but to me, it just, because all the stuff that he says about, like he wants to find this different way of working, you know? Um, he wants to work without the whole machine of stardom, you know, like a lot of the stuff that he does as the, as this character and I'm still here, he's really just sort of like ranting about 
the people that he knows, like the sense of entitlement of actors, the way they treat their assistants, the way that they consort with sex workers and do drugs and like, like he, 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 he believed like his character says that he, he deserved to be performing at the inauguration, mm-hmm. <laughs> like at the Obama's inauguration. I mean, think how like conceited they ha- he has to be, you know, there's also something in it about, cause um, this also might not be very well known, but Joaquin has this like ongoing rivalry with Leo DiCaprio Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so um, he th- there's a really great speech actually recently that he gave, <laughs> and in um, I think it was like two years ago when he won the Screen Actors Guild Award for Joker as the best male uh, lead, and he gets up on stage and he basically like announces in a kind of rare moment of like authenticity. He's like, my whole life I used to go to auditions, you know, since I was a little kid. And I always would lose out to this one guy and no one ever dared to speak his name, but the casting directors always said, it's Leo, it's Leo, you know? And he always felt like he was a couple of steps behind Leonardo DiCaprio because they're sort of the same kind of guy. They're the same age. Mm. Like Leo's also a Scorpio. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're born literally on the same, in the same year. I think Joaquin is just a couple of weeks older and they kind of play this sort of intense guy, you know, always in movies. And I think Joaquin had this like, maybe it is like, I don't know. I think he always admired Leo for being like such a staunch professional. Like he's such a, he's such a like bona fide star. You yeah, know? he really is. Yeah. He really is. He doesn't put a foot wrong, like ever. <laughs> no, like the only thing you can say about him is like he dates really young women. Like yeah. that's like the only, that's like the biggest, <laughs> that's like the closest thing to a scandal that like has ever, and like that's a hugely long career and just like yeah. he's never stepped, he's never put a foot wrong. No, yeah. no. And he, he gets so many roles and he's, he's such a like, Almost like a golden age of Hollywood kind he of actor. Is. He is he? a golden age actor, definitely, definitely. He really is. Like, and he's and he's also born in LA. You know, he's like, he, he, nothing seems to phase him about his industry. Like, he just navigates it with such aplomb, <laughs> and like, and he always comes out on top. You know, and the fact that they're also both like environmentalist activists. There's that mm-hmm. that also little doubling going on. You know, like. Leo, his whole Instagram account is about the environment. Like he does these huge um, events for like National Geographic. He's all he's 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 got he's got a lot of clout in that industry. You know, um, outside of his normal acting job, he's like a very respected environmentalist activist. And Joaquin, you know, he's always been a vegan. He's an animal rights supporter, but he does it in a very different way. He's more like grassroots. You know, mm. he's not this like really polished star. He's definitely not like a conventional star. Like the guy seems a bit crazy. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I, I listened to the Woody Allen um, autobiography, Apropos of Nothing. And he, he talks a lot about, I mean, he actually narrates it. And he talks a lot about um, various stars. He's, he's worked with so many stars. And he talks a little bit about all of them. When he got to the part about Joaquin Phoenix, because, you know, he, he was in Woody Allen's film, Irrational Man. Mm. It was so, it was like a surreal break in the narrative. He was like, this guy is really insane. Like, he's just like, not of this planet. He's crazy. Like, it's just like, like you can just tell everybody who works with him comes away thinking, 
who is this freak? You know, like he really is a weirdo. That um, makes me so interested in who Rooney Mara is then that she can like, I have know. like a, you know, a close relationship with this like alien. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Because Rooney comes from a very wealthy, well-to-do family, mm. like, like almost like American, <clears throat> American aristocracy kind of thing. They're all very like, posh and like sophisticated and polished and she's you know she had a baby with this like force of nature Mm. (laughs) and I love the fact that he named his son River that is like that actually made me cry like (laughs) but anyway um like you can tell probably that I really love him and uh, for me like I think he's um he's he's so uh he's just a pure kind of artistic force that is so important in cinema, in my view, you know? And what was interesting to me at the time is that a lot of people didn't know that this film, I'm Still Here, was a mockumentary. They thought this Mm. was an actual depiction of Joaquin Phoenix. They didn't realize he was playing a character for like a year and a half. And they thought that he was this like horrible guy, you know? And he's really not at all. Like he's just the sensitive person who just wanted to be who was admittedly trying to be really cutting edge and make a different type of film and not not ever break from this character that's what's fascinating to me he committed to just living like this like notice like he wasn't brushing his hair and starting to like grow into dreadlocks yeah and he was gaining weight and like increasingly being more erratic as the film went on and like he just decided to do that. And on the DVD, on the extras, there's this post interview, like when the film was released and he went back and talked to like the, you know, Hollywood extra reporter who like, who, to whom he broke the news that he was retiring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he comes back and he's all like, he's like super svelte and like, you know, back in his like film star persona you know like looking good clean shaven he even looks like he smells good you know (laughs) and he was just he was like yeah that was such a trip man and I was like who are you like who are you really you know it really makes me wonder no one's gonna know like he's he's also a professional I guess like in the way that no one really knows who he is He's an enigma. Yeah, exactly. Do you ever think about, like, this is really interesting because the way you're describing this, it makes me realize that this is such a cult film, mm-hmm. like, hugely loved by, like, people in the know, mm-hmm. um, which makes it a really good double with Velvet Goldmine, actually, because yeah. that's also a cult film. Um, like, it's hugely, like, what a cult film is. Yeah. Um, but do you have, like, something I thought was how this might have affected other people's careers? Like, for example, if, like, this was, like, you know, an industry-wide thing, like, people that were interviewing him or, like, people that were, you know, reporting on him. But also, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Because Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't act anymore. She doesn't. Do you think this might have something to do with it? Because, like, the whole, like, all of the press for her, like, her movie was just, like, overshadowed by this bonkers thing. <laughs> Like, do you think she was just like, you know what? I'm gonna go and sell vagina eggs. Like, fuck this shit. <laughs> it would be interesting to find out, like, the cultural history of like of Gwyneth Paltrow's like switching careers, and if this had something to do with it. I would it's, not be surprised one bit. It's just because, a theory, but I think you, I think you're onto something. 
because she is, you know, she is a very image conscious actress, you know, she's, and she is professional, like Mm -hmm. in her persona present presentation, you know, um, and to have her film press junket completely hijacked by, by this gang of weirdos with their like cameras following Joaquin, um, and him doing the most unpredictable things. I mean, that whole Letterman thing was crazy. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, people, people thought that he was like on serious, like hard drugs, or that he was like on it, on his way into like a mental asylum. You know, like I, people were really disturbed. <laughs> I mean, it seems like I think like Casey Affleck has expressed regret over the professionalism of that production, sure. hasn't he? Like yeah. it's definitely something that I think everyone kind of lost their minds on a little bit or like didn't I mean I guess like if you have I mean it's the method of it like you have all these guys acting like children yeah like it's going to be really difficult for like especially the women on set like it seems oh yeah that's where and that's another thing like because like that's that's the film that the sexual harassment um allegations came out of and like against Casey Affleck against Casey Affleck and people like when people were reporting on it like they were just like I don't understand is the the sexual harassment allegations part of the film or are they real like because it was so hard to know what was real and what wasn't like I read a Guardian article that said basically like when they when this journalist did the interview with Casey Affleck the film was a serious film in quotes and then before the the article went to press it came out that it was it was a hoax so like this article is a really strange combination of like a serious interview and then talking about finding out that it's not real and then like they're totally confused because they don't know like if all of the surrounding stuff about it is real or not um so yeah like really fucked a lot I I just think it would be quite an interesting cultural history like the making of this film and all of the kind of fallout of of perpetrating like a piece of method acting like this yeah 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 for sure I mean just the fact also that his uh, assistant Anthony Langdon he used to be in the band Space Hog yeah and it was interesting to me that he had enjoyed you know a relative amount of success with his band and now he's like working as Joaquin Phoenix's like assistant and doing some pretty like fucked up stuff yeah and it's the, the the kind of creation of that as a narrative, which is completely obviously fiction, um, was interesting to me because I think it's had it it it's it's kind of invited an interpretation of the strange wheel of fortune in show business, where you can suddenly your fortunes can turn, you mm-hmm. know, and you're really at the mercy of uh the, your, the particular era of your time and whether people like you and you have to be in the right place at the right time and like know the right people and there's all kinds of factors and moving parts that you might not necessarily be in control of but at the same time you have to worry about your craft you have to worry about your performance mm-hmm. and it's like um there's something about the the infamous scene of you know when they have a falling out um Joaquin and his assistant and he's telling him you know he's saying to Anthony I I will shit on your face Mm. you know Um, because he suspects that Anthony's gone and sold a story to the press but then you know Anthony goes and does exactly that I mean or at least it's implied (laughs) in that clip and to me this feels a little bit like 
Joaquin Phoenix turning around and like defecating on his industry mm. for trying to like pigeonhole him or trying to like scape- scapegoat him, actually, you know? Um, there's something like very defiant about it because he's really like playing the character probably of millions of agents and actors that he's come across who he probably can't stand. Yeah. A real diva, but with like, with none of the glamour actually. Like it's just the worst of both worlds. Yeah, it definitely is. I think it's a strange decision. I mean, that I think that there is like something still about the film that I think is like has a not very nice like quality to it yeah and I guess maybe like because of the time the timing of when he did that film of like all of that success with walk the line yeah and I do wonder if like there's I mean obviously like um like it's a double-edged sword like success it can be like traumatic as well as like wonderful but if it is like kind of a protest against the industry it seems like a slightly ungrateful time to do it I suppose like you know when he's kind of just like adored um for like some recent work like to turn around and yeah I don't know but that's, but that's the thing you see because he he's he's saying that he doesn't even, he doesn't want to be adored he just wants to be able he just wants to have the artistic freedom to make what he wants so do you remember in the opening montage when they're like they're showing like his wonderful streak of success post walk the line, like Mm. his golden globe and his Oscar nom. And then all of the interviews that he does and they're asking him the same questions and he has just a stock answer for every single one of them. You know, Um, it's just what he's kind of saying is that he thinks that's bullshit. Mm. You know, he's kind of saying that he doesn't want, you know, he's, it's, or maybe it's more ambivalent. Like he kind of wants it. He wants to be Leo, but he also resents Leo. Yeah. Or, you know, he, he resents this, the, 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 the machine that, that churns out stars that are so perfectly polished because then there's no room to really experiment or to, or to go off script as, as it were. Mm. He's got a very mixed reaction to it. Like he's not, um, I mean, I remember uh, when Joker first released um, and there was all this talk about, you know, potentially there might be, you know, an outbreak of violence in movie theaters because Joker is an incel movie and, you know, people have to be very vigilant when they go to the cinema. Mm -hmm. It still makes me laugh because like nothing like that ever happened. I think the worst case that ever happened with the Joker release is that one guy was thrown out of the cinema because he lit a cigarette in the back row. He wanted to have a smoke a cigarette during his screening. <laughs> it's just funny. But anyway, in the early days of the release, I think it was like opening weekend, Joaquin went to like just himself and like a mate. He went to like different cinemas in LA just to say hi to like the audience. Mm-hmm. It was not like part of the Joker machine. It wasn't like Warner Brothers weren't making him do that. <laughs> he just wanted to like just thank people for going to the screenings. And I remember like people posting on Twitter, like their little like phone recorded encounters with him. And he was just there wearing like an anarchist t-shirt, like a circle A t-shirt. That's really nice. Yeah. That's something that DiCaprio couldn't do. Definitely. Or maybe he could, I don't know. No way. I don't see him ever doing that. Like go among the unwashed masses. Like no way. No. It would have to be like a red carpet event, you know, um, and then he would be 
they would nobody would be allowed near him. You know, he's just too much of a big star. Whereas Joaquin just sort of like he just was worried that like people were actually scared. Yeah, there's something about that that I find so antithetical to everything that his industry commands him to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's sweet. I like that story. Yeah. But anyway, this we better stop here because otherwise I'm just going to launch into more adoration <laughs> and worship. <laughs> do you want to move on to Velvet Goldmine? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so set in 70s and 80s Britain, Velvet Goldmine follows a journalist, Arthur Stewart, investigating the story of pop star Brian Slade, who withdrew from public life after a publicity stunt backfired and alienated fans. With references to David Bowie, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed and other musicians, the film charts the highs, lows and love affairs of Slade and the people around him. Not a very traditional synopsis, but it's quite a meandering film. (laughs) Oh, it is. It is totally. I mean, people thought this was like supposed to be a a very historically accurate biopic about David Bowie. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, that's how originally the whispers were about this film. And then Bowie saw the script and he disliked it. And he refused to have his songs in the film. Mm -hmm. And he just was like very offended that someone had made a film like this. But this is not, this this is fan fiction. Oh, that's interesting. Because I did like, I read like after much consideration that he did, that he refused. So I didn't realize he was like a straight up no. I thought there was quite a bit of back and forth or like. Oh, no, no, not at all. Like he, he was adamant. He had seen the script already and he was really a, because obviously Bowie was a very image conscious man and he was notoriously obsessive about how he was presented or represented. Um, for exa- even, even post death, you know, his estate refused to have any of his music linked to this new biopic Stardust. Mm-hmm. Um, like he was very, I mean, I mean, he's a Capricorn, you know, so he was very controlling about his own image. He was very like, he wanted to make sure that he had full control of that. So to have a film like this, which is just more like phantasmagorical, you know, um, it does, it's not actually, the film is not aiming to be historically accurate at all. There's no. no inherent logic to it. It's, it's more about like Christian Bale as a fan fantasizing mm. about the different characters of the glam rock era and like coming up with his own conclusions and narratives about how they all connect it's more from the point of view of like a fan fiction, you know, rather than. That's an yeah. interesting word. Cause I was going to ask you, I really like this genre of taking something real and fictionalizing it. Yeah, like I'm really too. interested in it as a genre, but I do have no idea what this genre is called. No. I, yeah. It should have like a technical name, shouldn't it? Like an official name, but you're right. Like taking a historically like accurate, thing and then just changing or embellishing details so that it becomes fiction yeah I mean I know like there's a term creative non-fiction yeah but I don't know it should be like the opposite of that somehow like yeah like fictionalized I don't know exactly what it is but like it's not more like a fever dream or like (laughs) I think fan fiction is good but it doesn't fit for everything because I really like um there's a short story um by Kurt Kristen what's her name who wrote um cat the cat person oh, okay. um in the New York and she wrote a story based on like a true crime 
about a girl who hears about a kidnapping and then kind of like imagines herself caught up in it or like imagines that she's met the kidnapper and it's like an amazing short story but um and I just I've been really interested in this idea of like mixing fiction and reality to make something like something new but I yeah I've got no idea I guess it could also be fan fiction because people kind of are fans of crime (laughs) no you're right there should be like a very specialized term that fits more what this is like this kind of the gold mine because it's 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 not just that it's fictional it's also it feels like surreal yeah and like strangely familiar like really uncanny and phantasmagorical but at the same time it's almost like it's like slightly like an academic work or like it's not quite academic but it's like there are references all the way through it and like quotes and things like that so it's kind of this like it's it's almost like an essay as well yeah yeah. it's very rich it's intellectual it's intellectual like or in a kind of like not in a stuffy way but in um a way of like pulling together disparate elements and like finding like fleshing out a new story like through them so there's some that's probably why I like it because that's like how I like to work so yeah yeah Oh my God, I love the way you put that. That Mm. is so true. Because it really captures the emotion of someone who was caught up in that, let's say, let's say in the glam rock era, you know, how it it captures, because you can, you can just read like a very objective account of the the events that happened during that time. But that's not necessarily going to track emotionally with how it felt. Mm -hmm. So to have this type of narrative, it, 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 it more successfully captures what was going on in people's internal worlds when yeah. they react when they re- related to this, um, yeah. Because I mean, like, it's worth just kind of commenting first and foremost on this kind of pivotal moment in the film um, where we have this guy uh, Brian Slade, who is uh, played. Is it is it Jonathan Rice Myers? Yeah. Oh my God, he's so beautiful. He's gorgeous, yeah. He's so beautiful. I mean, they all are. Everybody in this movie is like gorgeous, apart from Eddie Uzzard. I always think, <laughs> oh, I think I've got kind of a crush on Eddie Uzzard, so oh, I would disagree with you there. Um, but Jonathan Reese Myers, I always laugh at that bit. You know in Match Point, the Woody Allen film, where yeah. he's Scarlett, and um, he goes to Scarlett Johansson, like, has anyone ever told you you have the most sensual lips? And like, the camera's on Jonathan Reese Myers with the biggest pair of lips known to man. <laughs> Like, it's like it's a joke. Like, Jonathan Reese Myers has nicer lips than Scarlett Johansson. Like, he's, oh my God. he's so pretty. He is so pretty. Like it's unbearable. It's like obnoxiously pretty. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's so true. It's like yeah, it's otherworldly how pretty Jonathan Reese Myers is. Yeah, he yeah he really. I thought he was very well cast in here. Yeah, very um, very much. Um, but yeah, like he, so he's obviously playing Brian Slade, who's supposed to be. Um, the Bowie character mm-hmm. and his stage persona is Maxwell Demon. I mean, right away it's interesting their names because, first of all, Maxwell Demon was, I think, a band that Brian Eno had or Brian Ferry, one of the two Roxy Music people. Oh, I didn't know that. And they were big on the obviously the glam rock scene. But so, so there's a nod to Brian there in his name. But also Slade, the word Slade, mm-hmm. it refers to an open space between banks or woods like a valley oh. in the earth's surface 
I've always wondered what that meant. I just know the band. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. I had to look it up as well. And so Maxwell Demon, I mean, Demon is like an evil spirit or, you know, something possessing or tormenting a person. So it's like an invasive force, which Mm -hmm. is the stage persona taking hold of this like in-between space. Um, And then we find out in the film that because there's like this mystery around whatever happened to Brian Slade. And we do find out that he's actually Tommy Stone. Mm. Tommy Stone, of course, being the kind of 80s persona of David Bowie, who was more like the stadium rock, like televangelist look, you know, um, when he Bowie actually uh, very hilariously referred to his 80s, early 80s persona as um, his Phil Collins era. <laughs> <laughs> Because is he that, went super mainstream. He, he released Let's Dance, you know? Is that after uh, he got off drugs? Yes. After he got off coke? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. He was completely clean at this point. Like, he, 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 he looked really healthy. He, like, gained a little bit of weight. He was boxing. He had a tan. He had that, like, amazing, like, head of platinum blonde hair. Mm. You know, he had a nice color to him. <laughs> but also, he was making a shitloads of money. Like... Um, when he went on the Sirius Moonlight tour in 1983, he said it was his um, pension tour, like his retirement pension wow, tour. Wow, okay. Because he made insane amounts of money. And this was in contrast to the 70s where he was like on skid row practically, like living in poverty. But but Stone is like, the fact that that character in the film, Tommy Stone, his surname obviously is like the kind of non-metallic mineral matter, you know, the the material world, you know, mm. of the earth, the rock, more rock than rock and roll kind of thing, you know, um, the Capricorn coming through. Like he really just wanted to make that sweet, sweet coin. <laughs> <laughs> but people, a lot, of, a lot of like true Bowie fans from the 70s were pissed off because they didn't like this more mainstream Bowie. They wanted the art, the art hoe, you know, like, mm. um, but yeah, I suppose maybe for a fan, that's kind of, the mystery of whatever happened to David Bowie. Like he became something else unrecognizable, you know? Um, but yeah, there's so many interesting um, things in the movie about who is representing whom in real life. Mm-hmm. So like Kurt Wilde, he's sort of a mixture of Iggy Pop and Lou Reed, but also maybe a little bit of Kurt Cobain. Oh, Interesting. Because of his name, like Kurt, and also he at that point, like later in the film, he has this like longer kind of blonde bob. Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, Jack Ferry, what an interesting character he is. Yeah, very interesting. Because he, um, the film starts with him. Yeah. He has acquired Oscar Wilde's brooch. Yes. Combination of Brian, you know, Brian Ferry. I'm going to put this all on our Instagram so pe- so our followers can see. But you know the bit in the in the film where Jack Ferry makes this grand entrance at a party mm. and he's wearing this beautiful gown, but he emerges from behind like tinsel. Yeah. Red tinsel. This is taken straight out of um, David Bowie's music video, Boys Keep Swinging, where David Bowie comes out wearing like completely in drag. Oh, that's he, interesting. Oh, it's so beautiful. And he comes and there's like tinsel, all tinsel around him. Is Jack Ferry kind of supposed to be representative of like the kind of like hidden queer culture that yeah. like these musicians sort of took from or like, you know, were inspired by? 
Yeah, but also like d- directly stole from, yes. you know, as, a, as, as you, <laughs> they actually stole. I mean, Brian Slade actually stole his brooch. Yes. Yeah. Like really like in this kind of like thing that like combines like sex and like stealing an actual item. Exactly. Cause I think that's so interesting because sometimes like relationships, sexual relationships do like, are like a transfer of like something like an energy from one person yeah. to another and they will like take from you. Um, so I thought that was a really beautiful scene. It was beautiful. Oh, my God. And then Brian Mulko is in this of Placebo. Is that yes. correct? I thought I yes. recognized him. And is he that kind of him. is he kind of Mark Bolan? Yes, yeah. T-Rex. Yeah. Exactly. Just kind of like a more like less, less kind of intellectual, more fun <laughs> glam rock musician, basically. I love T-Rex. Me too. I love T-Rex so much. Mm-hmm. Absolutely the David Bowie and Mick Ron- Ronson guitar fellatio was yeah. replicated as well, obviously with Kurt Wilde. Um, and this is what also really like, I thought was so clever. So, you know, like Eddie Izzard's character, he plays Jerry Devine. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who manages Brian Slade. But Cecil is actually um, a stand-in for a real guy. He's a stand-in for Kenneth Pitt, mm-hmm. who managed Bowie in the late 60s. And then... On the cusp of the 70s, Bowie sacked Kenneth Pitt for this guy called Tony DeFries. Right. Who, who's the man who, who became his manager and owner of the of Main Man Records. Do you remember the scene where they're all like gathered together in this really beautiful like restaurant? Brian Slade and Jerry come up with an idea for Kurt Wilde mm. to, for him to make music again. And and uh, and they say, you know, we can have Brian produce your record which really did happen um, in real life. David Bowie really did produce records for um, Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kurt Wilde says, well, I was on the heroin, but I, I quit that and I'm on the methadone now. Heroin used to be my main man, but you, you can be my main man. And then they're oh. like, Brian Slade had little hearts in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, I like that scene. <laughs> Me too. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with that scene. It's so cute and cool. Um, but the, the, the main man reference is is a direct reference to um, Tony DeFries's record company. This guy was a genius. Like he really knew how to amplify the star quality of his of the people that he produced, like Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, David Bowie. They weren't very mainstream in their quality, and yet he just made them amazing stars. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though that machine, because like obviously the last film is like very critical of that machine. But yeah. I think there's something that the machine has to be respected because it can make like the human superhuman, you know, like oh. it can really like, yeah. it really like, I just think cinema is like Hollywood cinema, like when it's done right is like, it, it's, it's, spectacular. it's spectacular, it's like heavenly, yeah. you know, and the same with like a pop star like they're like they become like aliens like something else and you can't do wow. it without the machine like it's the machine is not is like huge amounts of people and time and work like put into just like making these in these like these images that are just something else you know it's so true they really kind of transcended to this alien level that i think is very much also a part of this movie velvet goldmine like the kind of science fiction element of it yeah I think you got to respect the alien a little bit like in terms of yeah I think I think it's 
yeah, like to a cer- at, at a certain level, you can only do it with like with a machine, really. Yeah, yeah, you're right, and I think that probably David Bowie, um, he kind of tried to emulate that himself, like when he famously like quit the glam rock scene at the Hammersmith Apollo in July 1973, where he announced that he was retiring and nobody knew what that meant. Mm. He really just meant that he was retiring with Ziggy Stardust, which also came as the news to his band, like the Spiders from Mars. They didn't know that. Wow. He just announced, a bit like Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, by the way, this is our, this is the last show we're ever going to play. And the bands were like, uh, real, you know, really? And the, the crowd went crazy. They were like in hysterics. But you know the scene where Christian Bale's character as a young person goes and sees Brian Slade? Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, that wonderful costume lit in blue. And then there's a narrative that he's been shot on stage. Yeah. Todd Haynes said that, that he wanted to create like um, alternative cinematic experience that touched on the emotion of what it was like to hear that your your idol and your icon, you know, would just disappear one day. Yeah, it so is. It's like he's being murdered on stage. It's an amazing story. Like the story that he comes up with of, and it, like the fact that kind of that Brian Slade like literally transforms into a different person. Yeah. Is it a different actor or is it just Jonathan Rhys Myers with like a lot of makeup on? At the end. So at the end, it is a different actor. Mm-hmm. But then if, if you recall, there's a when he's Tommy Stone, when it's finally revealed that that, that is really Brian Slade, you, you, there is a little glimpse of Jonathan, Jonathan Rice Myers in the Tommy Stone um, make, you know, right. get up. Yeah, I, do, I thought that was just so clever. Like the idea of, yeah. Yeah. A totally, like someone trying, someone starting again. It's kind of like what, Joaquin Phoenix is trying to do and I'm still yeah. here which is to just like become a totally different person at like a same astronomical level of fame yeah like and like <laughs> there's no connection between the two of them like he's just like totally reborn as a different person but someone else who has oh, the yeah. same the same success is kind of like what you is what you fantasize about in when you're fantasizing about persona other personas you know that's so true. Like you want to be like where you are now, but different. Like you want to yeah. have, you want to have a, you want to not lose anything, but you want to be different. Yeah. So that's like that's the ultimate fantasy, isn't it? Like to, to oh like to change, but without pain. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Whenever I fantasize about different personas, I have. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I had a a very strong fantasy around the time when I had like quite bad depression that I would be in an accident and I would lose my memory and I wouldn't be able to remember what had got me there. So yeah. I wouldn't remember being like hurt by anyone yeah. or any anything painful. Yeah. And then I would just like continue my life, but like not be able to recognize anyone that caused me any harm. <laughs> like I'd just be oh like, God. oh, I don't know what, like, yeah, I'm sorry, oh. I don't recognize you. I wish that would happen to me as well. <laughs> I know, like it's such a powerful fantasy of just it yourself, is. but without trauma. Yes, just delete all the bits in your brain that are like holding on to the trauma. Yeah. Someone please come up with that. Well, that's eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Yeah. <laughs> and it goes horribly, horribly wrong. It goes horribly wrong. wrong, but in my film it would go right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. 
I like the fact that this movie hinges on obsession with performance Mm -hmm. that like, because you know, there's a guy also who says like, there's all these like funny little aphorisms in the film. Yeah. And some of them are belong to Oscar Wilde. Like obviously um, man is least himself when he speaks in his own person, give him a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Yeah. There's another aphorism. I don't know if this is Wilde as well, but someone said um, the first duty of life is to strike a pose where the second duty is no one's yet found out. Yeah. <laughs> and so that speaks to this kind of like um, dominance in the glam rock era of just purely the, uh, the exterior, you know, and purely the persona. And if you can just successfully achieve that, then you've, you, you've made it, you know, that's your success. Mm. That may have been the original intention and agenda, but what it actually ends up creating in the mind of a fan, like the Christian Bale character, who's so obsessed, you know, like you can see he closely follows everything that they do, press cuttings about them, and he has an erotic connection to them, Mm -hmm. you know, he really does. And so I guess I'm just kind of interested in the way that that then breeds the compulsion or impulse to imagine them romantically connected. Because in real life, David Bowie and Iggy Pop never had an affair. They were just really good friends and they lived together for a while in Berlin. I can't imagine how that leaves this kind of little bit of space for fantasizing artistic collaboration as a romance. Yeah, I guess it's like the original shipping, this film. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a very it's very romantic. Yeah, it really is. It's really romantic. I mean it's yeah. like very sad as well because there are all of these people like heartbroken. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. I have um just a final thing I'll say, uh, and then I'll leave it to you if you want to c- close with anything else. But when I used to work at that video store, I might have mentioned this before on the pod, back in my Montreal times when I was going to university and I had a part-time job at a video store, the place where I got held up at gunpoint, by the way, every single shift that I worked at this place we were allowed to like play whatever film we wanted on our shift. And I mm. always played this one. I always played Velvet Goldmine. Like oh, everyone that's knew. That's so cool. Everyone knew that if I was going to be on shift, that's that's all they would be hear- hearing, like <laughs> on every monitor in the video store. <laughs> that's such a cool um, thing that you get to like play what you want on the on your video shift. That sounds so nice. <laughs> yeah, it was really sweet. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I just know it by heart, you know? It's a very cute film. It's interesting that that like Kurt World is like your kind of, you know, your like real takeaway from this film. Yeah. Because kind of what you said in the beginning about um, letting the persona kind of like disavow the shadow yeah. is like exactly what he doesn't do. Mm-hmm. You know, and like and that's there's this really kind of crucial scene where like um brian slade is performing in the early days he's like wearing a dress and like (laughs) performing acoustically and like something's not gelling like and then he sees um kurt wild for the first time and they say and like as he's performing they say his backstory which is you know like this kind of like sexual abuse and like electroshock therapy and it just kind of like highlights the fact that there's no like that he's really kind of like bringing all of his demons ironically not in like into his work yeah and like there's like the persona but there's also this very authentic like inner self whereas Brian Slade like at the beginning like towards the end becomes more authentic and like more of a professional Mm -hmm. but like at the beginning it's very clear that he 
Like, I mean, th- there's actually multiple scenes where he sleeps with someone and then takes something of theirs. Yes. Um, and like, that's kind of, he just is sort of this person that's like trying on other people's identities for quite wow. a while. And it's really only at the end when he's like Tommy Stone that he's kind of, he's like formed this like kind of, ba- like this like barrier against like, you know, he's got this like really cohesive identity that is like really kind of, you know, is mysterious and kind of has no past <laughs> and is like a tabula rasa sort of thing. But yeah, I think there's loads of what you, of your the theory that you brought to the episode in this film. Oh my goodness. I love the way that you articulated that. Mm. That is so true. Yeah. So even though, the, even though Kurt Wilde is, you could say, the, the one who suffers maybe more mm. or is the more vulnerable. You could also say that he's the most um, forthcoming about his shadow. Like he's really integrated his shadow in his work. He is. And that's, I think, why he's the object of romance yeah. in the film, much more than, than Brian Slade. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, everyone seems to have a romantic relationship with him. Even Tony Collette's character. Yeah. Um, she kind of, they, she goes to his, his, concert and like hugs him and kisses him and like they seem to be really close despite the fact that they (laughs) are like love rivals um for brian slade's affections kind of um so yeah like i think it's a strange setup of a film where you think someone's the main character but actually it's someone else yeah um and yeah the film's like much more in a way about Kurt, kurt wilde or like i don't know kurt wilde is kind of like Come, comes out best even though he, yeah as you say he goes through much more pain than anyone else um but and he's also like the only person that like gives instead of is stolen from yeah um that oscar wilde brooch yeah, at the yeah, end he gives it to yeah he gives to it arthur stewart who yeah. i keep thinking sounds like martha stewart yeah he does actually <laughs> um yeah, it's I true. think that's quite. There's like something quite significant in that that you just see all of this stealing go on, and then wow. there's this. And he doesn't almost. He doesn't want to take it. Like he refuses it, and then it turns up in his drink like a magic trick. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I just think I can see why Kurt Wilde is like your sort of fixation in yeah. this film because he's um, the erotic drive of the film. Yeah, he's definitely the erotic drive, and like, and he's treating the erotic in like a really responsible way yeah you know like he's like he knows kind of excess but he also knows like generosity and like tenderness like he's super he's super attractive I know he's so attractive Um, yeah this is a career high high point I think for Ewan McGregor yeah definitely Um, this and Trainspotting the two penis movies the two heroin movies heroin movies (laughs) heroin penis movies (laughs) our new favorite genre well, on that bombshell, um, <laughs> no, in what you said really illuminated a lot for me. I hadn't really considered that at all. Um, what you said about the taking and the giving back mm-hmm. and kind of being this open, vulnerable, kind of attractive force in the film. That's so true. Yeah, yeah. I like the way you said that. I guess it just shows how important it is for your persona to be informed by real things within you yeah um in the way like you know your like wild persona was informed by things that you genuinely love yeah (laughs) um whereas maybe brian slade's persona is informed by like a certain um like a certain cynicism of seeing what works yeah um 
So yeah, like that's more maybe mar- marketing savvy. Exactly, and that's maybe why he had to kill it <laughs> off in order to get to something else. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he and Bowie always said, like, you know, it, it wasn't something sustainable. Yes, you know, he, he had to move on to the next thing. So it was a little bit disposable, actually. Mm. Oh, I miss David Bowie. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know when we when when I was in the car um, with Paul. And we, we were listening to like my Spotify playlist. I made sure there was no Bowie on there because if I hear his music, like I just start to cry. Aww. And he's like, I want to listen to Under Pressure. I want to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to. And then he forced me, and sure enough, I started crying. Yeah. And, he, and he's like, this is good for you. You have to just like get over it. You know? <laughs> Another thing about Paul's car, actually. You know, he watched uh, I'm Still Here with me last night. Mm-hmm. And he was most impressed by the fact that Joaquin Phoenix's car is the same as his. Oh, my God, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's a classic Mercedes from 1983. That's so strange. <laughs> Do you remember when he was, like, on his way to see, like, Puff Daddy and he was driving his car and then he almost crashed onto, like, the ramp? Yeah, I remember. I did remember thinking the car was quite something. Like, actually, <laughs> you can tell that. Different color, but it's the same model. Amazing. <laughs> so he was like, in the in the in the Phoenix and DiCaprio Wars, I'm Team Phoenix <laughs> because of the car. <laughs> anyway, so that's Paul's two cents. But this has been really fun, Sarah. Yeah. So what are we doing next week? So next time we will. Um, let me just get my handy dandy list here. Okay, confused identity. Mm, I'm really Always looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Always Shine and The Man Who Haunted Himself. Amazing. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about Always Shine. I love that film so oh, much. I know. I'm so glad you recommended that we program that one. That is such a good film. So good. And I'm excited to see The Man Who Haunted Himself for the first time because I've never watched it before. Oh, you're in for a treat. <laughs> I love Roger Moore. Roger Moore's my favorite Bond. I know that's oh, yeah. like, I know I say a controversial statement on this podcast every single time. <laughs> and like, I'm going to get some more people like coming at me. Um, <laughs> But Roger Wall's my favorite Bond. I think he's like super charming, really good looking and funny. He's amazing. Yeah. I love I love Roger Moore. <laughs> um one more thing actually before we go. Um just want just notice that we do have a couple of new reviews on iTunes. Oh, good. Thank you guys. It and they're really, really nice. Us. It really helps us. They're both five-star reviews. I'll just read the schmooze one. Okay, cool. Um this is how to discuss film. One of my absolute favorite podcasts. I was already a fan of horror, but projections encourages me to be braver and more curious. Mary and Sarah's discussions are thought-provoking, funny, and insightful. You don't need to be a horror fan to enjoy the podcast. I think anyone with an interest in the psyche and human behavior in general would find this really interesting. Thank you so much. Oh my God, that's so nice. I hadn't that's seen that so one. Nice. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so sweet. There is a new one just a couple of days ago. Someone said, excellent, witty, insightful. I love it. Both so insightful. And kisses. Thank you, guys. Oh, and thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We love hearing from you. Like, you guys are so cool. (laughs) Um, But also, we've had another donation, haven't we? Is it Ian? Yes, Ian. Thank you again. I mean, Ian's like a regular donator. Um, but yeah it was very nice to get that in our inbox (laughs) and also a recommendation um, for a film oh yeah uh, like a rape revenge film um, called 
thriller a cruel film there you go that one um which i actually have on a hard drive um oh. which someone gave me and i've never got around to watching so now i have a copy so i'm going to be watching it soon but i started watching miss 45 the other day and i oh, thought yeah. i would do like a double feature of two rape nice. revenge films so there go. yeah there's like classics that i haven't seen i haven't seen i spit yeah. on your grave i haven't seen like any of this stuff i haven't seen last house on the left but i'm not sure if i really want to yeah it seems a bit nightmarish <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah, I love Miss 45. Um, oh my God, it's so stylish. It was so stylish. I knew, I watched. I kind of watched it as I was getting ready to go on holiday with Alex. And then right. um, and I was like, watched it while I was packing. Um, so I have to watch the rest of it. But yeah, I thought it was great. Oh, very cool. We love your film recommendations. So yeah. keep them coming. Yeah, I love film, film recommendations. It's really nice to hear. So please recommend films to us on Twitter or Instagram. Oh, nice. Well, until next time. Bye. Bye. Running wild, lost control. Running wild, mighty bold. Feeling gay, reckless too. Carefree mind all the time, never blue. Always going, don't know where. Always showing, I don't care. Don't love nobody. It's not worthwhile. All alone. Running wild